studying with uh, one of the Burmese teachers through a, an, an interpreter. And this teacher was known to be very uh, demanding in his teaching. I was very pleased that he had taken me on for individual interviews, so I was determined to do well. And again, you know, I do the homework, and, uh, and besides, I don't just do it, I have to do it well. That's a whole other problem, but anyway. So here I am in some remote place in the world, doing the homework, trying to do it well, going for my interviews, and you have to talk to an interpreter. So I come, and you have an interview every morning, so five minutes to say your thing, and then he gives one instruction. So I come in and I'm really prepared and I say this and this and this and all kinds of things were happening in my practice and I thought it was quite interesting, certainly a very interesting, it was to me a very interesting practice and very dramatic and um, unfolding, it was always new and I was certainly paying attention, I was unhappy about it, I was inspired. And I would say out my whole thing and uh, it goes through the interpreter and uh, the teacher would listen. And then he'd say, come back to the interpreter, and the interpreter would say, Masayadav says, try harder. <laughs> I thought to myself, I'm killing myself. You know, <laughs> you know, I can't try any harder. Uh, and I also thought I was doing great. I wanted him to say, Masayadav said, you're doing great, keep on, good for you. You know, we have a different pedagogy. It's a different cultural <laughs> style that we cheer people on. You know? Messiah now says, try harder. And I thought to myself, I haven't got a clue. What should I try harder to do? But the thing was, I tried harder. I tried, whatever it was, I tried harder. It was inspiring to me. Which led me to feel that it didn't actually have to do with Messiah now and what he said. It had to do with me. And my need to do well, my desire to do well, my need to do well, part of it it's a healthy desire to do well. I like that about myself, that I'm really committed to things. Part of it is neurotic. I have to do great, otherwise I feel bad. And as I said, and if I do not great, I feel humiliated. So that's another part of it. On the scale from neurotic to wonderful, it's partly a blessing and partly a problem. But, but I could see in that moment that it was all in me. Side out just saying his thing. Who knows if the, even the interpreter said it right. Because I also had the thought the interpreter didn't tell him right. <laughs> if the interpreter had told him right, he wouldn't have said that. Okay, so now I tell you what I really want to talk about today, which is a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. What's your name? Marilyn. Marilyn. You know, sometimes I think when people hear the instructions about name it, what exactly it is, they get involved with that, you know, what is that a thought, a memory, a reflection? Or, uh, I think sometimes it's easy to say, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm reflecting, okay, here, you know. You don't have to decide, really. Mostly, you can get six, there are six mental nodes, seeing, feeling, think, seeing, feeling, tasting, smelling, hearing, thinking. That's about what goes on. That's good enough. That's good enough. That's good enough. No, 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 that's wonderful. 
Do you like a little bit of uh, meditation instruction every week? Do we do that in the schedule? Okay, we're building that in the schedule. We're also building uh, birthdays in the schedule, you remember. So since I will be gone the next two weeks, we'll do birthdays in August on the 19th, on the 20th, okay? Be sure to come. Everybody who's got a birthday in August, we're going to sing you happy birthday. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about, I want to talk about depression, actually. I want to talk about depression because it came up in a bunch of ways in this in this week and uh, well, the, if, if I were going to give a talk and, and if they asked me if I had to make a title for this talk I would say it's so complicated everything is more complicated than the easy answer and uh, one of the reasons I, I uh, wanted to talk about depression this week is a friend of mine recommended that I read this book The Noonday Demon have you read it? I've read, huh? Heavy, heavy. But, and, I, I have just actually started. I started in the middle. But uh, I'm very, very impressed with the huge compendium of thought there is about what we call depression. I, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. I looked it up. I wanted to see what did the Buddha have to say about depression, first of all. So I looked in the, in the, um, index in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length sayings, and there is no listing for depression. So, but I noticed that there was one listing for despair. So I looked up despair. It's in uh, sermon number 141, verses 16 to 18, have to do with pain and grief and despair. And he says that pain is, has to do with uh, bodily pain. You talk about having pain, to do with some bodily pain. It's a physical thing. I have pain means there's a physical element of it. Um, grief, he, uh, the Buddha said, uh, has um, a mental is the has a mental is a mental aspect of um, distress. That uh, not being a physical pain but grief over some situation, some condition, some something. Then he said that despair is the trouble, the tribulation of one who has encountered some misfortune or is affected by some painful state. Now thinking about um, the despair that comes after you encounter a misfortune or have a painful state. But think about all the different things that happen to people, that happen to them or that happen to people that they care about. And what happens physiologically and mentally and uh, not that those are two separate events. And how complex it is. So I was thinking first of all around uh, or what came to mind immediately are uh, some of the uh, uh, aphorisms that are part of the current culture that are cheerful aphorisms. You know, in my dentist's office, for instance, has um, uh, posters on the ceiling so that while your chair is leaned back, you can read all these uplifting <laughs> posters on the ceiling. And they all say things like, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. Uh, you know, this is the kind of standard uplifting you can see that I'm having a hard time uh, 
feeling as good about those kind of sayings today as uh, I have in the past. You know, when I read them and I'm in a good mood, they seem very witty. Uh, I think sometimes uh, they must be very painful for people who do not have the strength to make the lemonade and have too many lemons. You know, that, uh, that there's a little bit of a cavalier feeling around that, just, just do it or uh, around all the instructions about make a new perspective around it or hold it in a different way. I mean, I love those ideas and I think that they are first-rate counseling ideas. My daughter is uh, a life coach and uh, it's a very interesting kind of uh, therapy because uh, although sometimes people mention what happened in their past and in their growing up, it's principally not uh, developmentally focused. You know, you could tell about your family, but mostly you talk about what's going on now and what you'd like in your life. And uh, you talk to, and you make certain commitments to try to work in a certain way to have them happen. And the coach is there for you to hear yourself talk about what you're doing in regard to what your goals are. So the coach is able to say, you know, I, I, I'm wondering if you think that this actually conforms with what you said before about yours, or I wonder if we could think this together in another perspective, or I wonder if we could hold this in another perspective. Actually, I'm very impressed with the fact that the, the coaching literature doesn't sound too different from dharmic literature. It sounds actually quite dharmic. And so, but the whole idea, and I, so I certainly am, I, I feel, uh, on the one hand, very much um, enthusiastic about it. It seems like a very healthy thing to do. So let's put another perspective around this. Let's see it in a different light. On the other hand, that also presupposes that the person has enough strength to make the other perspective or has enough, um, is not so sunk into their own despair that they can't imagine another perspective. In the middle of feeling terrible, it's hard to imagine another way to be. I'm looking around. Um, I don't think that the person is here. Tell me if you are. I think, no. There's a, what, last week when we sang happy birthday to everybody up here, remember those people who were here? One of the women in the middle, right in front of me, had a red turban on not a woman that I know well, and I, when I noticed the turban, um, it occurred to me that it was possible and probably likely that she was in the middle of chemotherapy because that's usually why people have turbans. And, um, but I didn't feel exactly like saying out. If it was someone I knew well, I might have asked. But anyway, when she was up here and we sang happy birthday and then everybody was getting up and the people still were left here, I said, by the way, is that turban there? And she, you're not here, are you? Okay. So she said it was all right for me to say this. I, so because we talked about it, was chemotherapy happening? And uh, her prognosis at this point is good. But she said, you know, I've never been happier in my whole life. This has been the best thing for me. I've really been happy. I'm so and everybody who was here, it was wonderful that the people who were left around were able to give her a special blessing for healing. But I was thinking about, here's this quote from the Buddha where it says, uh, 
the despair is the tribulation of one who has encountered some misfortune or is affected by some painful state. And I was thinking about that. what's the difference in people that some people encounter, many people encounter the same misfortune and have different degrees of upset from it, different degrees of post-traumatic stress disorder, if we were going to say this in uh, psychological terms. After uh, the, the people who were the uh, boat people, from the immigrants from Vietnam, some people forever terrified and other people make a new life. Um, I know people who um, survived um, uh, the concentration camps, some of whom were able to get out and say, I'm out, make a new life, and are fundamentally cheerful people, not um, not afraid of the world. Other people who are afraid their whole life. One of the things that I'm really interested in is whether or not people get a choice about that. Whether it's the kind of parenting they had, whether it's more fundamental than that. Um, one of the reasons I'm really interested in it is I wonder about the role of meditation in changing personality how much it can do. I think it can do something, by the way. This is the end of the whole talk. I think it can do something. I don't know how much, but I think it can do something. But I also had a, a desire to talk about it because um, there's some, I think that there's a subtle kind of a moral stigma placed on people who can't get over it. You know, they say, well, just get over it. You know, just it's over and done. Drop it. You know, and I, I think to myself, maybe we have not fully recognized that how difficult it is for a variety of reasons to drop it. But, you know, the rubric about, that we've talked about this before, I know, but um, saying to somebody, just let it go, is, is really not including the awareness that it's not the same possible for everybody to let something go. If we could, we would. Nobody feels like suffering. That's fundamentally it. People say, you know, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so for the rest of my life. And you feel bad for them, and you say to them, you know, you're the one that's suffering. You say, well, I can't do it anyway. It's not actually, it's not, it's not unwisdom. Maybe it's just there's some piece we don't know. So I wonder how many of you saw this article in Saturday's New York Times about the gene mood. Did you see this? Hmm? A depressed patient tells me about her neighbor. He is suffering the crises that arise in the course of diabetes. First foot pain, now vision loss. He's remained upbeat throughout. He's legally blind, my patient said. I don't know how he can stand it. Amid the wonder, I sometimes hear a suggestion that the man lacks self-awareness. You see, it could be on both ways. You know, someone gets over it, and we have actually a, a, also a bad opinion of them. They're so shallow, they should be, you know. I think, I think actually it's interesting to think about that we are just so ready to find something wrong with somebody, everybody, that either they're too this or too that, you know, too joyful. They shouldn't be so joyful. They should be sorry for suffering more. Okay, 
to this question for how some people cope, scientists have now proposed a tentative answer. Humans are constructed differently. Adversity depresses some, but not others. So a report in the current issue of Science Ma uh, Journal looks at the effect of stressful events in early adulthood and the way that responses to them are mediated by a single gene called 5-HTT. The same gene was in the news in the 1990s when in its variant forms long and short, when its variant forms long and short were discovered. The gene makes a protein that modifies nerve cells' use of serotonin. So people who know about the depression drugs will know that they modulate serotonin level in the drug, Prozac, Paxil, uh, Zoloft, Wellbutrin, Celexa. The gene makes a protein that modifies nerve cells' use of serotonin. The short version of the gene was linked to neuroticism as a personality trait. The news media called it the Woody Allen gene. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's always they're looking at me, they're talking about me, they're having it in for me. You know. uh, <laughs> this is this is too trivial, but anyway, it's too funny. Do you know the the uh, the uh, cartoonist Roz Chas in the New Yorker? This is a, a a fantasy scene of what happens at the party after I leave. So here are people on a, on a uh, the, these people are on a penthouse apartment in New York, and this is all what's going on after the person has left. This person is saying, I think it's time we served the really good champagne. And the other person says, yeah, I'll pour the rest of the swill into the toilet. And uh, thank God she's gone. Now we can really have some fun. I have the most scandalous gossip I want to share. Anybody here want to try this very, very safe, short-acting, non-addictive, extremely fantastic new drug? <laughs> and this last one over here, this man over here waving, said, hey, look what just walked in. Yo, Jesus, Buddha, over here. <laughs> That's all what happens in the party after you leave. That's, <laughs> That's the Woody Allen gene. <laughs> Anyway, so here we are. The new genetic findings make depression look like an aspect of normal temperament. After all, 70% of us have one short 5-HTT gene and vulnerability to depression is normal. But the study also meshes with the prevailing model of mood disorder in which depression is every inch an illness. According to theory, most depression arises from an interaction of genes and experience. In the predisposed, early trauma and subsequent adversity lead to depressive symptoms and subtle changes in the brain. Chronic depression produces marked changes. Particular brain regions begin to shrink and show restructural disorganization. Structural disorganization. Resilience factors, maybe which include that protein produced by the 5-HTT gene, mitigate that damage or allow for repair. So it looks like some people just ride through adversity easier than other people. They say, well, that's over. Say, for the present, should we, what should we say to the depressed patient who's talking to Peter Kramer? This is Peter Kramer who wrote the book Listening to Prozac, who wrote this, who said, my neighbor is 
blind from diabetes and so cheerful about it. So what shall I say to her? Shall I say that um, different people experience life differently? Maybe, he said, but maybe we should suggest that she, like he, is suffering a debilitating illness and that the neighbor may, with equal justice, admire her fortitude. He has diabetes, she has depression. They both are genetically mitigated diseases, apparently. So this was on Saturday's paper. Yesterday's newspaper, Jonathan Franzen, who I like very much as a columnist, he's he's also writes books, but often writes columns for The New Yorker, writes to say, look, uh, in that uh, article that Peter Kramer wrote, he said, I don't think it's as easy as that. He said, there's no question that profound depression is a disease. For most people, though, moods are more complicated phenomena than just depressed and undepressed dichotomy that drug prescribers offer. As a narrative account of ordinary lives, genetic determination is hopelessly simple-minded. If it's romantic to prefer more interesting and subtle stories, or recognize that people use the word depression in a hundred different ways, then please call me a romantic. So the question is what uh, that I'm thinking about. I don't know the answer. Um, I just want to think about it a little bit with you. I have some more stuff to tell you about. No, think about it together. It's about, what does that mean, the ways that we use the word depression? And is it a steady state? Is it, um, I think a lot of times we say, I'm so depressed, when we mean I'm sad. You know, the, the people, people I know who really have uh, struggled with long-time serious depression, say it, it feels different in the body, it rolls in, it's a condition like a migraine, you feel it differently in yourselves. My guess is that a bunch of you know about that, that it just comes, sometimes it comes and stays a long time, sometimes it's the tenor of a life, sometimes it comes periodically and goes. I had a friend years ago, I have a friend still, who many years ago, 35 years ago, before there were any kind of drugs to deal with the depression that were workable in a regular life, had a kind of cyclical depression, uh, came predictably every six months, one way or the other. And her mother had had it before her, so it was likely, it's likely a gene that runs in families. And she was a meditator. And uh, she said that the meditation did her a lot of good. And the good that it did her was not so much that it caused her not to have the depressive episodes that came. She said, but the mindfulness caused me to see them coming and anticipate them. And she said, I could lighten my schedule, I could fix my work schedule so it was going to be less. I could anticipate it wisely and uh, and remember that I had ridden them through before a dozen times. And so I could go through that period, not that I wasn't depressed, but I wasn't hysterical about being depressed. It was just sort of like knowing, well, here it comes again, alas, I don't like it, but it's here. And I don't have to make myself a bad person for having it. It's not my fault that it's here. I have to make my schedule lighter. I have a number of friends now who have chronic fatigue. have to work their schedule around their chronic fatigue. It's very hard not to 
be angry at the chronic fatigue or not to fault oneself for having the chronic fatigue or Interesting, this question about different people experience their lives in different ways. Do you remember a year ago, we talked about the miners in that uh, Pennsylvania mine. Remember that great story? It's a, mi- a year ago that those nine miners were uh, rescued from the mine, and it was so heroic, and everybody um, got so excited about it, myself included, because it was a wonderful description of solidarity, the things that they said about while they were in the mine, they um, they they did something like I, I am touched by two facts that I just remember over this year. One is that they tied themselves together in the darkness. They said, if we drown, we'll at least drown together and spare our families the trouble of having to search for individual bodies. And I was so touched by that that in the middle of such terrible adversity that they should be thinking of the well-being of their families. I thought, that's really extraordinary. I think that that's true about people that even, uh, maybe especially when the chips are down, that we come out of our preoccupation with ourselves and think about other people. I think people did that. Remember in um, on, on September 11th, when people who knew that they were going to die called their family and said, I love you, take good care of yourself. They really, at that moment, took care of the other person. You know, I think when, when you know you might die and when you know for sure you're going to die, then the only thing to do is take care of other people. It makes you feel better. That was very touching about it. But there was another story about uh, someone, a lunchbox floated by and someone said I opened it and there was one dry sandwich in it so I took a bite and I passed it to my buddy and that moved me so much that under those kinds of circumstances we don't think about I'm hungry and I'm cold I'm going to eat this whole sandwich and I take a bite and I pass it to my buddy and I think to myself in our lives you know that in this world if we realize that all of our lives are hanging on the edge really an imperiled planet, who knows how many more generations of people, and such a vast disparity of resources, would we not actually take bites and pass it around more? Would we not divide up what we've got more? Sometimes you read about uh, what the average monthly wages are of a person in such and such a country, or what people eat in a day, or the numbers of people who go to bed hungry. I mean, if we had that taped up on a mural in our dining room, would we not be more actively feeding them in some way? Take a bite of the sandwich. So, in this week's uh, newspaper, there was a a story of um, what happened to those nine miners. And mostly not good things happened to them. They came out, they were saved. the next day, Disney came and gave them each a $150,000 contract for complete rights to make a TV serial. $150,000 is a lot of money for a minor. They signed on. Then someone said, you know, um, really, there was one of the rescuers who was really important. You know, when it first happened and the mine flood happened, 
the first person to get a call ah, a man whose name at this moment is just escaping me but um, he uh, he got a call that uh, he's an engineer who uh, uh, could do the site location and uh, rushed out to the site and uh, Long, his name is, his name is Bob Long. He rushed out to the site and using certain satellite uh, 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 determining position uh, equipment, he figured out where to put the drilling. And because he figured it out right fast enough, they could get a tube down and push air down. And really because of him, the whole rescue happened. If he had not figured that out, if he'd done it wrong, they, they wouldn't have lived. So the, um, and apparently at the time he felt very pleased that he'd been able to do that. And there'd been somewhat of a little fuss in the media about him. And uh, then the miners were rescued. And then apparently, the, I guess Disney came and offered him $150,000 for also because they figured some other uh, network is going to come and offer him that. They're going to make another documentary making the rescuers the heroes, not the miners. So when you think about it, were the miners the heroes? The miners were just the miners. They were stuck there. Maybe not only Bob Long, but the hundreds of people who dug and risked their lives and got them out of there in those two days. <coughs> Apparently what happened after that was there started to be animosities in the town. That the people who dug and rescued and were didn't get remunerated started to feel bad and Bob Long started to get bad phone calls and people started to taunt him about it. Anyway, last month Bob Long killed himself and suicided um, and he was apparently drunk when he did it but took to drinking and killed himself. He had a wife, he had two children. So you don't know, uh, it, it, here was a here was a, a moment in time that nine people actually the whole country celebrated the resilience of the human spirit and the fact that human beings can work together and that they can affect such a rescue and that we feel so good and somehow you can't judge how it's going to fall out on people um, and you know is it the fault of the people who harassed him or would he himself have felt bad or was the stress of it all? Of the nine miners, two are back in the mine and they're fine. And they say, you know, hey, I'm a miner. It's my life. I don't know how to do anything else. I'm happy when I'm in the mine. Could happen. Everybody dies sometimes. I'm back in the mine and I'm fine. Two out of the nine are okay, not traumatized. The other seven are all degrees of traumatized, frightened, can't go near water can't sleep, have nightmares, on drugs. It's a really, it's a really terrible circumstance for many of them. So there are many ways to think about it. And I remember last year when we talked about it, I, one of the ways I said the most obvious way to think about it for me is what are they doing in the mine altogether? You know, that uh, uh, mining something that is uh, further polluting the planet, which is harming their health, in a dangerous way. That's a whole other story. So that, but that's leaving aside that to say here the same event happens to a bunch of people, but you don't know how it's actually going to fall out. You don't know how it's going to fall out in their minds and in their hearts. And 
There doesn't seem to be a common denominator to what picked up the people who were able to pick themselves up and why the other people couldn't pick themselves up. Peculiar. I read a book this week by Amy Weintraub. Amy Weintraub is a yoga teacher. Um, she wrote a book called Yoga and Depression. There are a couple of pages from talking about uh, her pre-yoga days. She, uh, when she, her experience in life was often being depressed talked about um, uh, a period of time when she had been quite depressed. I got, I get, sometimes I got up in the morning with what felt like a layer of cotton batting between my brain and my cranium. Neither coffee nor exercise penetrated the thickening. I moved as though through a fog. My senses were dulled and my perceptions impaired. One day I sent a check to a health insurance carrier for the entire checking account balance instead of the payment due. I forgot important meetings. I lost keys and gloves. I even lost once my car in a parking lot. It's just to say that uh, she was, that the hurricane came up the East Coast. She said and she was trying to work with her partner to get the house boarded up, and she and she was making a mess of it, dropping boards. And the partner said to her, "Amy, pay attention. Look what you're doing." She said, "But." Neither my partner's threats or curses, nor the electron-charged winds in which we work could blow the fog from my brain, a fog, a fog that was to linger four more years. So several weeks later, I sat on my therapist's couch telling her that my life was meaningless. How could I justify my existence when my novels were stacking up unpublished in my closet? You're one of those people who will always have empty pockets, the therapist said. That's a terrible thing for the therapist, he said. Is that awful? I mean, that would be such a, a cause. If any therapist ever tells you that, get up and leave. <laughs> that is a non-therapeutic statement. I hope that poor therapist doesn't hear this tape ever, but that is not a therapeutic thing to say to somebody. Um, I visualize myself like Virginia Woolf, filling those empty pockets with stones and stepping into the river. Until I took my first yoga class at Propolo Center in Lenox, Lenox, Massachusetts, I believed my psychiatrist were right. My empty pockets and my need for antidepressant medication felt like a life sentence. In that first class, the instructor had us place our hands in prayer position in front of our hearts. Take a long breath in, she said. Fill your heart with light. Hold the breath and feel the light as healing energy expanding through your chest and through your whole body. Exhale and open your palms to receive. Stay empty. God loves your empty hands. Can I try that? That's a good experiment. I'm going to put that down so I can do that. Take a deep breath in. Fill your heart with light. Hold the breath and feel the light as healing energy expanding through your chest and through your whole body. Exhale and open your palms to receive. Stay empty. God loves your empty hands. Let's do it one more time so I can do it with you. Okay, here we go, hands together and just breathe in and out and do all those things. 
may think about that. You like to stay empty, yeah. Mark, what do you say? Well, you need something to say what? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> what else? Yeah. Yeah, I do think the question is, do I know what it, do I know what that means? I, someone said to me recently, the soul loves to hear something that it already knows. <laughs> that uh, and I I like that very much. That that I go through the world, but every once in a while, my soul. So not a Buddhist word to use, soul, but we'll all just go with that for a minute. That place in me that knows gets it when it hears what's true. And it goes past or under the radar of my intellect that either believes or doesn't believe or gets it or doesn't. And it's just such a relief to do without my intellect that believes or doesn't believe. You know, when I, when I read that to you, here's, here's like a key thing. Uh, by the way, this book will come out this fall. I, it's a very good book. It does not say, Amy, by the way, was able to give up all of her drugs, and she's become a yoga teacher of, uh, you know, uh, if not somewhere now, and she will be after this book, but um, she's a yoga teacher, but she's very clear in the, in the book that this does not guarantee no medication, that the goal is not no medication. The goal is a, is a life in which your heart is alive, and with respect to everything that can be... Uh, wisely incorporated in having that happen. Not this or that, but this and that and that. For many people, no more medication. For many other people, less medication. But for a lot of people, hopefulness, which is a really the... You know, when, when I said to you, take a deep breath in and fill your heart with light, nobody said, hey, how do you do that? You know? You just did it, right? That seemed like a perfectly reasonable thing to say to people. You fill your heart with light. You do it. Um, and then the other part of it is this, exhale, stay empty, hold the breath and feel the light as healing energy expanding through your chest and through your whole body. Somebody tells you to do that, you do it. And it feels true. And in that moment, it is true. And uh, there's a, there's, uh, there isn't any way... I'm not sure that this is going to be the cognate story, but I will tell you my own story to tell you why that's resonating so much with me. I met my yoga teacher in 1967, 68, and uh, yoga was not so well known as it's gotten to be now. And uh, a friend of mine took me to a yoga class, and uh, I loved it. I loved her voice, I loved her demeanor, I loved everything about her. Actually, I think I fell in love with her, that she, I had the sense that she knew something that I needed to know and I didn't know it. 
so I would study yoga because I figured it was the yoga that was the thing that had done it for her. And in subsequent years, I was so glad that, first of all, she wasn't teaching long distance running because I have the wrong body, or <laughs> that actually that she wasn't a karate teacher because it's not my style. So it turned out that I could do yoga, so I studied yoga. But anyway, she, I'd be lying there and she'd say, uh, feel your body surrounded by, uh, your belly surrounded with an orange light. I think to myself, that's nonsense, belly surrounded by an orange light. But, meantime, she said it, so I'm doing it. So now, it's surrounded by an orange light. You know that uh, there was a way in which I'd have to go through that little maneuver of my mind saying, that's nonsense surrounded, who could do a thing like that? Meantime, I'm doing it, I'm in the class, why not? You know, that, that there's a way in which you ride through what, what what the what the rational, so to speak, mind balks at, and who knows if it's an orange light or it's an imagined orange light or it's really healing the system, whatever. But if I feel that it is, and I get up from those classes and I feel like a new person, something is happening. She said when she finished the class, every cell felt awake and in a state of awe, a state beyond happiness, in which I felt connected to all beings. Now, where exactly? Maybe this is the place to go from that. I've got so much stuff that I, it was a, it was a great week. I keep thinking about you all week. Oh, I'll bring this, I'll bring this. Um, talking about the feeling of being an outsider. If you're a depressed person in a world that's at least not announcing itself as a depressed world, you feel like an outsider. I know that myself from periods in my life when I have really felt like nobody was seeing it as sadly as I was. I'm not by nature uh, a depressive um, I actually think I was born with a somewhat cheerful, if there's a cheerful gene, I probably have it. But I have had periods of time where I have been seeing the world through a lens that I knew was more depressed than other people. And it felt really lonely because everybody else is behaving like everything is fine. And you personally know it's not fine. Is that, do you, do you recognize that place? of loneliness, of only you know that it's not fine. And it's like a bad thing to let other people know that you see that that way because you're sort of letting on the bad news to other people. And you don't want to, first of all, you don't want to be, first of all, you don't want to embarrass yourself. Everybody else is in a different place, but it's lonesome. Um, also, there's a certain way in which I have felt protective of everybody else. Okay, if they don't know, I won't tell them. Um, because then I won't be able to put them back again. It's like once people see profoundly how much suffering there is in the world, on every level, they can't not see it anymore. You can't not look at the miners and think, what are they doing underground to begin with? You can't uh, not look at the state's financial crisis and think, what's going on? Where, at what level has this happened? 
One of the, the, the great line, though, that I, I copied out from Amy's book and pasted up on my computer is uh, the reassuring line of that one that she began to tell herself that I decided we could all tell ourselves about the bad story we make up about ourselves about anything that we've got. He said, you know, the bad story that she was telling herself about I am a person with empty pockets, I don't deserve to be well, I will never be happy like other people, I am uh, a different kind of a person. This is uh, Swami Kripalvananda. He said it in a, it was, she heard, she said, I heard these words attributed to Swami Kripalvananda in a yoga class at Kripalas in 1987 he felt something inside of me change what he said was my beloved child break your heart no longer each time you judge yourself you break your own heart that i just like that so much i typed it out i cut it out i pasted it on the rim of my computer each time you judge yourself you break your own heart don't need to do it. We are all doing the best that we can. Joan. I, I, it's a very important thing to say, Joan. The, the, the person was undoubtedly James. The, the, the name of the book is The Nine Practices of Happy People. They are great practices. A friend of mine told me the other day that her spiritual director said to her that um, joy is not an option. You know, that it's a requirement, and uh, attention to beauty is a requirement. Um, the piece that... Uh, I, I have a great um, uh, interest, particularly these days, and um, uh, people have been knowing that I, I've talked a lot this summer about the five spiritual powers. What picks up your mind when it's falling down? concentration and mindfulness and wisdom and faith and energy. I'm very interested in working them out into some scheme in which we can really see them. Those are the five spiritual powers that the Buddha said of what, what lifts up the heart. Uh, and I want to do it, that uh, I, 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 I want to take that list and I want to do it in a way that takes into consideration everybody's different psychology and everybody's different physiology and makes room uh, so that it doesn't so that it's um, a nuanced formula i absolutely think that there's that there are practices to do to hold up the heart um, i read a novel this week called the secret life of bees who's read that it's the most fabulous novel I've read that I can think about in the longest time. It is fabulous. Here it is. It's a little novel. Run and get it this afternoon. It's called The Secret Life of Bees. It's by Sue Monk Kidd. It says a wonderful novel about mothers and daughters and the transcendent power of love. That's not exactly. Uh, well, it is. Set in South Carolina in 1964, The Secret Life of Bees tells the story of Lily Owens, whose life has been shaped around the blurred memory of the afternoon her mother was killed. When Lily's fierce-hearted black stand-in mother, Rosaline, insults three of the deepest racists in town, 
Lily decides to spring them both free. Actually, Lily goes and springs her out of jail. And the two of them escape to, and Lily is 14. Lily, they escape to Tiburon, South Carolina, a town that holds a secret to her mother's past. Taken in, they get taken in by three black women who are beekeepers. Uh, and uh, the a remarkable novel about divine female power, story that women will share and pass on to their daughters for years to come. It is fabulous. It is fabulous. On many levels, it is fabulous. Just for the story itself and for the reminder of what was going on in our time not that long ago. For the extraordinary story of, um, of, um, of how the heart heals itself and how, how Lily's healing happens, how clearly it, uh, every single person that I came away, let me start that sentence again. I came away finishing the book, of, first of all being thrilled by the fantastically beautiful writing, um, thinking about how the only work that I have to do is to get my heart to keep forgiving. If it can't forgive this moment, and that to, if it can't, it can't. And to give it time, which is part of the story. Nobody gets pushed. The great wisdom figure of the book, who is one of the three beekeeper women, has such a uh, wise woman sense about her, such a uh, things happen in the right time, in the fullness of time. If you just continue to love and give space to things, they will ripen and nurture and become wise and do the right thing, and it'll work out. It's absolutely beautiful. And I copied um, two lines out of the beautiful writing. One is uh, the realization of Lily near the end of the book, uh, where she has struggled with anger, not even anger, rage, rage and despair and fear and huge shame and everything else. And she has a moment where she's free of it and really, in a, in a certain sense, liberated because my sense of li what liberation is, is a moment in which the heart uh, has so forgiven that it just has no problems. It's a moment of complete grace in the heart where things are just okay. It's just not a problem. In which case, you can look out of your eyes, it's as if all the smoke screens that uh, occlude the world aren't there. Because the smoke is what we are making in our own chatter. In those moments of profound grace, when it just isn't a problem, don't have to worry if I'm better than or worse than, if I did the homework, if I didn't do the homework, how I am different from that, I am depressed and nobody else's, I am this and nobody else's, I am that and nobody else's. All those problems go away. In those moments, I'm a mean-spirited person, I'm a generous, gone, you can see out. So Lily says, as she's um, discovering this and uh, lying in her bed in a place of profound peace, she says, you have only to close your eyes, breathe out, and let the puzzle of the human heart be what it is. It's a beautiful line, isn't it? Do it for a minute. Close your eyes. Breathe out. 
Let the puzzle of the human heart be what it is. Isn't that, that the most generous thought? Just let it be. The other line that I copied out was a moment earlier in the book where Lily is, is uh, has been taken in by all these women and in a moment of uh, relief, in a moment of joy, in a moment of suddenly seeing, she said, um, I realized it for the first time in my life. There is nothing but mystery in the world and how it hides behind the fabric of our poor browbeat days shining brightly and we don't even know it. A lovely piece, isn't it? Well, that's, that's extraordinary writing. So if I were going to be here next week, I would say, wow, everybody run and get that book. And we'll talk about it next week. But I'll be back in three weeks. In this month's issue of Gratitude Magazine, oh, no, Spirituality and Health Magazine, says uh, the most immediate uh, pickup for the heart is to think about what you are grateful for. Now, truth to tell, in the middle of great sadness, in the middle of overwhelm, the heart feels bitterness and resentment. It even resents being told to be grateful. Gratitude is for those people who have something to be grateful for, not for me. But it's a good practice. Maybe we sit for 30 seconds thinking each of us about at least one thing that we're grateful for. May the merit of our being together of our study, our practice, our thoughtfulness, our dedication, be offered as a gift for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.